Welcome to the November 2018 Rehab Cast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. In this month's podcast, we're going to be introducing a completely new journal, the open access journal Archives of Rehabilitation Research and Clinical Translation. It's a sister journal to the Archives, and it aims to be just as high quality while operating on the open access business model versus the standard subscription model of the Legacy Journal Archives. You're going to hear about all the details with the journal's inaugural editor-in-chief, Dr. Jeffrey Basford, who himself is a past editor-in-chief of the Archives as well. Also in this podcast, we'll delve into some really cool new research into the physiology underlying myofascial trigger point release with Albert Maraska of the University of Colorado, Denver. And in case your podcast player is missing the October rehab cast, it's not acting up due to scheduling challenges and an unusually busy month for your host. Uh, we couldn't bring you one last month. Here's part of the reason why. Because every story has a flip side. It's become a common sight on social media. You're scrolling along and you see a post asking for donations to support some kind of medical treatment, often because a person doesn't have insurance or they've exhausted their resources. These crowdfunding campaigns can raise a substantial amount of money, but are there ethical concerns? Joining me now to talk about the good and bad of crowdfunding medical treatment is Dr. Ford Vox. He's medical director of the Disorders of Consciousness Program and chair of the Medical Ethics Committee at the Shepherd Center in Atlanta, Georgia, and co-author of a short research letter on medical crowdfunding published this week in the Journal of the American Medical Association. He joins me by Skype. Welcome to Science Friday. Hey, good afternoon, Ira. Good afternoon to you. These crowdfunding campaigns can uh, help bridge the gap financially for people facing expensive medical treatment, but what, what's the downside to this? That's right. So the downside is what are people going to be raising money for? You know, we certainly hope that it's true insurance gaps, of which there are there are a lot. There's a lot that insurance doesn't cover that maybe it should. Uh, extra added costs when people are off work and important equipment and so forth. But what's potentially dangerous is what you're raising that money for. It might be something that's not evidence-based that could be dangerous. You mean some sketchy kind of treatment, something like that? That's right. And that's what we focused in on this paper. We looked at five diverse different so-called sketchy treatments, uh, some of the most dangerous ones being stem cells implanted into the central nervous system. People raising money to get this done down in, in Mexico, fly to China. Yep. So one thing that kept me busy last month is some research that I had published in JAMA. And the project stems directly from attending ACRM's 2017 annual conference in Atlanta. So think about that and sign up for the 2019 one in Chicago. So at last year's conference, we had a symposium titled Hyperbaric Oxygen and Traumatic Brain Injury, Caveats, Controversies, and Challenges. Moderators were Men Graf and Nathan Zassler, and presenters were Sarah Roxwold and David Sifu. The bottom line was that there remains insufficient evidence for hyperbaric oxygen as a treatment for brain injury-related impairments though there is some interesting research happening in the very acute phase. Nonetheless, there are providers out there offering it as an out-of-pocket expense to the very vulnerable population of folks out there that are looking for anything that they can find. The internet is loaded with anecdotal reports of miracle brain injury recoveries attributed to one treatment or another. 
The situation is so bad in disorders of consciousness care that the new guidelines published in the archives do encourage providers to discuss levels of evidence with families to help them process the onslaught of claims they will inevitably see as well-meaning friends and families send the information found online. Now anyway, back to that hyperbaric oxygen symposium at ACRM 2017. In the audience, I talked with a few folks, and one mentioned that they had seen patients raising money on GoFundMe, a crowdfunding service for hyperbaric oxygen. The thought immediately occurred to me that this could actually be a major new public health challenge. Whereas previously, insurance coverage, or lack thereof, served as a stopgap for limiting access to low evidence or dangerous treatments, if the crowdfunding economy is really taking off, and by the way, GoFundMe has raised $8 billion as of their last report last fall, then suddenly there could be a lot more access to a whole range of iffy alternative treatments out there. I reached out to my friend Art Kaplan, he's an ethicist at NYU, and together we set out to characterize the new crowdfunding economy. Our paper is titled, Medical Crowdfunding for Scientifically Unsupported or Potentially Dangerous Treatments. It was published in the October 23rd issue of JAMA. We simultaneously published on the Health Affairs blog a deeper analysis of the data since our JAMA research letter word count didn't really allow for much. And that article is titled, Medical Crowdfunding's Dark Side. Now, hyperbaric oxygen wasn't our only concern. We also looked at cases of people raising money online to inject stem cells for brain or spinal cord injury, various homeopathic and naturopathic treatments for cancer, and even long-term antibiotics for chronic Lyme disease symptoms. It is a wild medical crowdfunding world out there, and the dollar amounts that we're looking at now, mind you, medical crowdfunding is the single biggest chunk of the crowdfunding sector and the majority of campaigns on most sites. It's huge. It's a trend that actually could start to influence medical practice, and that's worrisome. What happens inside your body when someone shoots you with a semi-automatic rifle? What does it do to your tissue, or to your organs, or to your veins, or to your bones? Semi-automatic rifles shoot bullets much faster than handguns. The speed of an assault weapon is substantially higher than the speed of a handgun. And so when that bullet hits the body, the energy that it has is dramatically more. That results in much more destruction. The first thing a bullet does is essentially drill a hole in you. This hole is called the permanent cavity. So the permanent cavity is simply the hole that the bullet is traversing through or creates as it traverses. The size of the hole depends on two factors. It depends firstly on the characteristics of the bullet and how big the bullet itself is and what type of cavity it's creating as it's going through you. That's just a physical hole it's going to literally punch into you. The second factor that uh, one has to be aware of is the speed. And as that energy is imparted into the patient, the higher the speed, the larger a cavity or a wound it will create. And so the cavity could ultimately be actual loss of whole body limbs. As an example, if I were to shoot you through the elbow with a AK-47, your elbow would be physically missing. That's a video from the Washington Post where trauma surgeon Dr. Babak Sarani of George Washington University Hospital in DC is speaking. Firearms and their rehabilitation consequences are certainly a topic that we've discussed here on the Rehabcast before. Now, if you're not on Twitter, you may have missed the This Is My Lane hashtag. 
It was spawned when the National Rifle Association sent out a feisty message on November 7th which read, Someone should tell self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. Half of the articles in the Annals of Internal Medicine are pushing for gun control. Most upsetting, however, the medical community seems to have consulted no one but themselves." End quote. Now that very same day, at 11.20 p.m., a 28-year-old man shot and killed 12 people at the Borderline Bar and Grill in Thousand Oaks, California. The NRA's tweet could not have been more ill-timed. The outpouring of response from trauma surgeons has been astounding to behold. Some really gut-wrenching stories in their briefest form as tweets, often with a telling photo attached. One doc tweeted a photo of an ER bay floor strewn with syringes, needles, towels, and tourniquets and wrote, single gunshot wound to the head as a drive-by. Surprisingly little blood, but plenty of blood-curdling screams from this middle schooler's mother when we told her that her baby was dead. Tell me, NRA, how do I get the screams out of my head four years later? A tweet from a physiatrist really caught my eye. Quote, I've been reading statements from the trauma surgeons and ED docs about gun carnage. As a rehab doc, let me mention lifetimes in wheelchairs with SCI, useless arms from brachial plexus destruction, colostomies from belly destruction, and years of dependence with TBI. Who tweeted that? That was a past president of AAPMNR and current chair of PMNR at UT Southwestern, Dr. Kathleen Bell. The Washington Post interviewed Dr. Bell and learned that she was working on patient charts in her office overlooking the trauma center's heliport when she learned about the NRA tweet. She posted on behalf of patients who, she explained, face ongoing indignities and pain long after any public outrage has passed. Also this month, the American College of Surgeons is out with a set of recommendations concerning gun safety put together by 22 ACS members, 18 of whom are proud gun owners themselves. The recommendations are science-based and they do point a way forward. Go check it out in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. It's titled Recommendations from the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma Firearm Safety Team Workgroup, Chicago Consensus One. And now it's time for our featured interviews. Joining us now on the Rehab Cast is Dr. Jeffrey Basford. He's a professor of PMNR at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, and Dr. Basford has himself a rather uh, diverse uh, clinical practice and, uh, and background. And he's past uh, uh, editor-in-chief of the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Today we're talking about the launch of the Archives' new open access journal. Dr. Basford, welcome to the RehabCast. Oh, thank you. Well, this new journal is titled Archives of Rehabilitation Research and Clinical Translation. Uh, and I understand the, the kind of soft launch is, is ongoing currently. There's uh, people can kind of already are starting to be able to submit papers to it from what, from what I hear. Um, can you, let's start with the title. Uh, why did we pick the title Archives of Rehabilitation Research and Clinical Translation? Actually, as in most things, it looks like a clunky title and it was a little bit of a committee decision. Uh -huh. But when we thought about it, we wanted both to, we want to be accessible and interesting to both all parts of the rehab community. 
everything the clinicians to the researchers. So the rehabilitation research, of course, underlies everything that we hopefully do in our practice. And the clinical translation uh, emphasizes the fact that we're really interested in uh, getting these findings out, out and used. Now, uh, it's, an, it's an open access uh, journal, but by, by no means does that mean uh, a lower, uh, necessarily lower quality journal by any means. Uh, in, in fact, selecting yourself as the journal's first editor, if I may, shows that you know, this is a really serious endeavor. Again, you were uh, past editor-in-chief in of the archives until 2013. Uh, how many years were you in that role? Editor-in-chief was a six-year term, and then I was on the board for... Uh, I don't like to think, 30 years? Goodness, yeah. When we think about open access journals, uh, it's something that has, a, has certainly evolved over our recent decades and just is becoming more and more popular every year. It does represent a kind of a different business model uh, for the publishing uh, industry. There's different ways that, uh, that fees are allocated and, and, and so forth. Let's talk a little bit about that context. And certainly, I, I suppose in some circles, as, as opposed to subscription journals, Open access journals originally, certainly when they started, were seen as perhaps lower quality, um, but that is definitely not the case anymore. Uh, I know that you have uh, previously written about uh, the issue of, of predatory publishing and, and rehabilitation in, in the archives. Can you tell me a little bit, let's start with like kind of the bad side of, of rehab publishing. Tell me what's what's going on out there in terms of predatory publishing. I'd rather talk about the good side, but the, the bad side certainly does exist. There are actually as many predatory journals in the rehab field as are listed in Scopus as legitimate. You typically can pick them out because they often email you for submissions with a very short timeline. They're usually part of a stable of multiple multiple publications that the only thing they change is the, uh, a name and the title and all of a sudden it goes from gynecological to rehab to basic physics. They are very, they're low fee. The downside is that there's no editorial review, there's no peer review, there's no guarantee that your paper will stay up forever as is the guarantee with legacy journals or the uh, upper tier open access journals. Um, they will not be indexed either currently or in the future in index medicus level indexes, which means that for a younger person starting out, it's kind of death for that paper in terms of their promotion. Right. And and I guess it, it does feed into the, the higher quality journals to, to a certain extent, given the fact that there is all this pent-up demand out there, and certainly the archives sees that. I'm sure the the archives uh, gets many more high-quality papers than it has space uh, to publish. Is that is that generally a true statement? Oh, absolutely. It's a little bit like uh, the NIH peer review panel. The the best articles, the, the difference between those that get published and sometimes those that don't, is minuscule. Yeah. And we feel terrible about that, but we have a page limit. Also, the archives, given this demand for publications, they have like. 17, 1800 submissions a year, and two or 300 get published. Our purview will be a little broader than the archives. It's still rehabilitation, but we are plan to take some articles that are worthy, but just don't fit with archives. It's forced itself to narrow its scope down to. 
Uh, can you give me kind of a general characterization of, uh, at least in your, in your uh, editorial chief days or time on the board, what, what's your understanding of kind of the general percentage of submissions to the archives that, that can't be published more due to space than the, than the quality? Right. They've, uh, well, I think also the archives has narrowed its scope over the years just because of publication. So the, there would be a lot there. For example, there are a lot of articles that uh, are geriatric-based, maybe are more observational, don't have a rehab intervention, that actually would have been published in archives with pleasure five years ago. But now we have some formalized rules that say, well, we're, we're really focused on rehab, not some of these other issues. So that's one, that's the whole category of papers that might be ex, uh, not published in archives anymore. Many years ago, we published a number of healthy subject studies if they were very relevant to rehab. The archives really doesn't do so anymore just because uh, we need to stick closer to our core mission. But the new journal the, um, would, pro- would consider the good healthy subject st- uh, studies if they had a strong correlation with you know, logical extension to clinical rehab. Excellent. And another chief goal of it is is being more expeditious as much as much as possible. You know, speeding time to publication, as I understand it, it ideally, while certainly doing all the required peer review. Do you have a general idea in mind of like you know how much shorter time to submission to publication might be in the new open access journal compared to the to the subscription archives? The archives, as have all journals have really narrowed down the time to publication given they have an online platform once the peer review is finished. Uh, We hope to have the time out from uh, from submission to uh, uh, publication and uh, in addition once the paper is uh, accepted the, the paper would be published within five business days be out there online wow. within five business days. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. We, we still do the peer review, of course, and we plan to have a more expeditious uh, uh, peer review system than the archives currently has. Now, uh, how long has uh, the archives and ACRM been planning this new journal? Oh, this is not a sudden decision. It's been talked about, mulled over for three, four years at least. And it appears to be, uh, of course, the, the journal is published by Elsevier, uh, which uh, does have a, a wide variety of different uh, payment models and is increasingly uh, pushing into uh, open access uh, as well. I, I suppose that's part of it, the fact that, that Elsevier is, is creating this pathway uh, for, for the archives and, and helping facilitate it. And not just Elsevier, Nature, many, many major publishers are doing this. Uh, yes, uh, it's... I can remember when the publishers were resisting open access of any form. They had a business model was paper journals. And then they kind of moved to grudging acceptance and now uh, full-hearted acceptance in in reality. The next step is open access. I mean, we have to remember that open access was well and and flourishing in the physics and mathematics world in the late 90s. It's migrating into the, the medical medical uh, world, I think more slowly, in part due to concerns about patient safety and uh, just how well the papers are are being peer-reviewed. So yes, uh, and as you know, open access journals are come in many flavors. There's, you know, they actually are now graded. There's a gold journals, silver, and 
I can't remember what the bot uh, what the third one is. I think there's green as well. In green, right? Exactly. The uh, the gold journal is what this one will be, which means it's 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 sponsored by a reputable publisher or association. Uh, there are fees attached to it. Uh, in our case, the fees are reduced for uh, uh, ACR members as well as for uh, people with legitimately no funding sources for the paper or from countries that are economically stressed. And so the, uh, the fee structure is, is something that uh, the, the authors uh, bear and that I guess are, are fee structures like this um, in terms of uh, funding from federal agencies and other uh, organizations, is that something that's, that's considered nowadays, the fact that uh, if you want to do publish uh, in open access, there might be fees associated with that and there, is there money allocated for that nowadays? What's your understanding of, of how that's working? Yes, uh, the federal grants, I, I can't speak for all because I'm sure some aren't, but many NIH grants do come with a, they realize that dissemination is an important issue, so they do come with some publication uh, funds associated with them. So many researchers, especially established groups, have, have funds for publication. They would be paying, depending on the membership of the person, the corresponding author, of course, would be paying fees. Uh, and you mentioned what was going on in you know physics and mathematics and, and stuff and so forth. I see you have some of that background yourself. You have you have kind of an interesting route to, to rehab medicine, Dr. Bassford. Can you tell us about that? Oh my God, I went to I wasn't. You're right. I'm physics and mathematics trained. Went into the Peace Corps for a while. Got drafted the way back for Vietnam. Served in the Army for a while. Came back. Uh, got my PhD in physics and math which is now very stale, uh, worked for a while as a consultant in the D.C. Beltway area, and then figured if I was going to work that hard, it was going to be for myself, not for somebody else, and decided medicine was interesting. So I, I went to medical school and then got into rehab because it had physical medicine and rehab, it had physics in it. Yeah, I mean, uh, people don't. I mean, it's, uh, sometimes people don't think about that that enough. But uh, it is the the field that has the the proprietary uh, kind of uh, where the rubber meets the road in terms of the the physical world and certainly the technology and, and everything associated with it. And you've had a uh, again a, a relatively uh, diverse PM&R career, seeing a lot of different types of patient populations, right? It's been very general. Back when I started, of course, back when I started the. Uh, we did practice more generally, so I did primarily brain injury and spinal cord injury and musculoskeletal. As the years have come along and subspecialty things have developed, I'm more and more into brain injury, but I've always been very interested in the modalities, the, the physical agents. A diverse clinical background yourself for, for leading this journal, obviously, have had the, the long career with, uh, with the archives as well. Now, here's the, uh, uh, the tough question. When's, when's the first uh, publication going to be out? Right now, you we're in the soft launch period, as you mentioned. We are running some test papers, so we expect within the month we'll be open for submissions, although it won't, may not be highly advertised yet. Uh, we're okay. hoping for the first paper to come out about the first of the year. Okay, fantastic. All right. And uh, freely available to, to everyone, uh, regardless of whether you're an ACR member uh, or anything else. And, and hopefully this will help, uh, again, as a 
uh, leading open access journal published by a, a leading rehab uh, uh, journal um, will help uh, will help the field generally interface with uh, with all those other fields of medicine which have a uh, a good diversity of open access journals uh, as well now of course uh, open access certainly facilitates for sharing on social media and so forth and it really does get that information out there yeah absolutely well dr. Basford I think that's uh, that's fantastic um, uh, thanks for for joining us and was there anything else that uh, that you wanted to add uh, that I didn't ask I think we're the future I think uh, uh, we and other journals that are on the same model probably are the future and uh, we're hoping to match up to our expectations all right, thank you. Well, those are definitely high expectations given the standards set uh, by the subscription journal. Uh, and I'm sure this will be a welcome addition. Thank you very much. And now moving on to our featured article in the rehab cast, straight from the November 2018 archives of PM&R. So joining us now on the rehab cast is Dr. Albert Maraska. He's assistant professor of research at the College of Nursing and Shoots Medical Campus, University of Colorado, Denver. Dr. Maraska and his colleagues uh, have a paper out in uh, the November issue of the archives of PM&R titled Increase in Lactate Without Change in Nutritive Blood Flow or Glucose at Active Trigger Points Following Massage, a Randomized Clinical Trial. Dr. Maraska, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. So uh, you have a, a, a big history in terms of uh, kind of investigating the complementary medicine approach of uh, massage therapy and looking at trigger points uh, in particular. I know your your background, your PhD is in uh, physiology. I understand. Would you walk us through a little bit? I'd like to learn about your your path towards uh, uh, finding your way into rehabilitation research. Yeah, it was uh, a kind of a, a circuitous uh, route to get there. I, I initially started out with interests in uh, immunology research, um, and uh, I kind of paired that with my personal interest, which was in physical activity. Um, mm -hmm. So I d went into a, a research program for graduate school that w focused on the immune system and physical activity. And that was really interesting. But while I was in that graduate program, I, I actually started teaching in uh, at a massage therapy school, a local massage therapy school. I was teaching uh, human anatomy and physiology. Um, mm -hmm. And then I uh, developed that uh, into a little bit more of an interest uh, as my as uh, as my graduate career was coming to an end. The position at the massage school uh, actually was broadening into developing a research program. Um, so I was able to uh, kind of transition from uh, my initial interest in immunology and physical activity and, and saw some uh, importance and relevance in massage therapy research and need for that, uh, uh, that field to expand. Uh, so we kind of, I kind of developed a, a research program at that school, um, and it kind of blossomed into a few research studies, and that, that kind of uh, uh, took hold. And uh, since then, I've been kind of focusing on massage research with an emphasis on myofascial trigger points. Okay, excellent. Well, um, and, uh, and your research is, is really fascinating because you're, you are, you know, physiologist. You're getting at this root of kind of what, what is happening in the, in the muscle tissue with these techniques. There's certainly plenty of evidence that they, uh, that they are uh, effective. Not, not sure know uh, why, or maybe, maybe that, that point is debatable as well, but uh, and certainly uh, my understanding of the research for 
uh, for trigger point uh, release massage is that there's there's plenty to back it up. And can you give us a little bit of, about the history of uh, trigger points and what they are? I know in your study you're looking at uh, active instead of uh, latent and, and what the difference is between those different types of, uh, of myofascial trigger points. Yeah, well some some early work by uh, uh, Janet Travell and, and David Simons back uh, in the 50s and 60s and 70s kind of highlighted the importance of uh, these uh, regions, these nodules in, in muscle called myofascial trigger points or which subsequently became termed uh, myofascial trigger points. And uh, these were consistently linked with um, myofascial pain. Uh, uh, common examples are uh, low back pain or neck pain. But in uh, more recent term, more recent times, uh, myofascial trigger points have been connected into other types of pain: uh, tension headache, migraine headache, uh, even osteoporosis, or, mm-hmm. and, and some forms of cancer pain uh, have some trigger point element to them. So these, these trigger points have actually become really um, clinically relevant in many, in many areas uh, relating to pain, uh, patient pain populations. Uh, so understanding how they form and, and how they create that pain or, or what their role is in, in that pain itself is really unclear. Uh, there are some hypotheses that uh, the myofascial tr- or, or healthy muscle develops into a latent myofascial trigger point, and that latent myofascial trigger point develops into an active trigger point. And there's mm-hmm. also some uh, uh, hypotheses that healthy tissue just develops straight into a, uh, an active trigger point. And the active trigger point is the one that cr- uh, is linked to a clinical pain complaint. Um, both latent trigger points and active trigger points uh, cause uh, uh, problems with muscle, muscle function, uh, muscle shortening, or uh, changes in range of motion, re- reduction in strength. Um, but it's actually the active one that is uh, directly linked uh, in terms of the, the clinical uh, pain itself. I see. Now, in this study, you, you picked the, the particular clinical population of folks who are having tension-type headaches that can be associated with uh, upper trap uh, trigger points. Uh, in the first place, why did you why did you pick that particular clinical scenario? Yeah, well, the, the tension headache is a, a very common uh, ailment. Ninety five percent of the population experiences ten- tension headache at some point in their lives. But even uh, uh, more directly to this study, some individuals have serious problems with with headache, where they experience. Um, uh, headache on a recurrent basis, uh, maybe as many times as uh, 15 to 30 times a month, they have headaches that mm-hmm. last uh, uh, four to eight hours. Um, sometimes it drifts over into the second day. So this is a, a, a population that's uh, most people can relate to. It's a population mm-hmm. that that uh, actually causes a, a lot of pain. Um, and a trigger point in the upper trapezius muscle is um, uh, a very common site for a, 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 an active trigger point in this in this population. Uh, so that's why we selected this population. More specific to the study is that the upper trapezius muscle is a, a superficial muscle. It's easy to access. Uh, so mm-hmm. in this particular study, when we're uh, placing the microdialysis probe into the into the trigger point, um, this is an easy muscle to work with. And 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 certainly this this probe itself. Let's talk about that because that uh, uh, is the crux of this study. And for folks who haven't seen it before, and and what it looks like, and how. You, uh, Put it in the muscle, and is generally how how it how it works. Can you describe that to us? 
Sure. You need to uh, uh, use an introducer, which is essentially a, a needle to uh, insert the probe into the uh, into the selected site, in our case, the, the active trigger point. Uh, this uh, needle is then removed and the probe is inserted into the trigger point. And the probe is this uh, uh, small diameter, soft, uh, flexible membrane that allows for transfer of nutrients into and out of, uh, uh, into, out of the probe itself. Okay, so it is it is soft and pliable. I was I was wondering about that. Our pipes didn't read closely enough. I was curious if we had a an actual needle in there while we're trying to uh, release the trigger point. But it is it is something that's kind of more malleable. Uh, that's correct. Yeah, it's it's a lot like having a catheter placed into a vein. Okay, excellent. Um, and in terms of uh, the the technique that's utilized now, you still do have this catheter in there, so the the therapist may not be able to manipulate perhaps in the same ways that they that they normally do um, but the technique used in terms of uh, the pressure you locate the trigger point and uh, apply pressure and so forth but you're leaving that that catheter there would you describe to us the particular technique that's used yeah, so the massage therapist applied what's called uh, ischemic compression. Um, uh, it's also referred to as um, uh, a trigger point release massage. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the uh, advantages to this uh, procedure and one of the reasons we, we chose this is because it's a static uh, procedure. That is, the, the massage therapist locates the trigger point and, and applies, applies a constant pressure to that, that trigger point, usually lasting around 30 seconds, maybe as long as 60 seconds. Um, the massage therapist then uh, releases uh, the pressure and reapplies pressure uh, several times as needed. Um, and typically the pain or referred pain that the patient uh, senses with those pressures um, dissipates. Typically that goes mm -hmm. away. So the, the therapist gets some feedback from the subject uh, that, that the treatment is working. And the therapist can also palpate this, uh, this nodule, the trigger point nodule, and determine that it softens and changes uh, a little bit mm -hmm. so they can get a, a, their own um, a feedback that there's some effect is, is going on. Now, in this study, your, your hypothesis, you're, you're physiologically testing what is, you know, kind of a widely accepted intellectual idea about what's happening with, uh, with trigger points, and also proven, well, suggested by some ultrasound research, I gather, which is that this nodule has less blood flow, and that's part of the problem, that it's somehow a bit ischemic, um, and, and you would expect to see correlating physiological changes uh, with that. Uh, uh, tell us a bit about that, that background and uh, that, that theory in the first place that you're evaluating and, and the evidence for it. Yeah, that, that's a, a great summary. Um, so the, the concept is, one of the concepts with, regarding a myofascial trigger point is that it's a, a tightly contracted uh, nodule within the muscle. So this uh, tightly contracted region um, essentially compresses the blood vessels in that area and if it compresses the blood vessels then there's reduced blood flow into the into the trigger point um, and this while while there's there's have been several uh, ultrasound uh, visualizations of the trigger point and an assessment of blood flow in the small arteries going to the trigger point um, there's been no actual assessment within the trigger point of what the blood flow is inside. So it's, it's, uh, it appears that it's reduced blood flow based uh, conceptually with the contraction of the muscle, but also with the blood vessels being a um, uh, blood flow in the blood vessels going to uh, that trigger point nodule being reduced. Um, 
uh, is very suggestive that there's reduced blood flow uh, to the trigger point mm-hmm. itself. So our hypothesis was that the trigger point was at a, a reduced blood flow state and that these treatments that are applied to these trigger points would therefore alter the blood flow and that would be one of the uh, mechanisms for how a trigger point resolves. And uh, and certainly in this study, it is it is a randomized trial and, and then in the, the kind of uh, uh, the, the control group um, that is getting uh, kind of the, the dummy treatment, that in this case is, is ultrasound, so it's something that perhaps um, the subject might think is going to be therapeutic uh, for their trigger point, but this is a non-functional ultrasound uh, probe, right? Right, right, exactly. First, there are two kinds of ultrasound. There's a visualizing ultrasound where you can visualize the tissues. This is often used in uh, evaluation of pregnancies. Um, But there's also a therapeutic ultrasound, which is used in physical therapy uh, um, facilities regularly. Uh, And there's a lot of large body of evidence out there showing both that ultrasound um, is effective at reducing trigger point, reducing trigger point pain and, and trigger points themselves. And there's also a large body of evidence saying, showing that subjects have a difficult time telling the difference between an active ultrasound treatment and a sham ultrasound treatment. So we felt that this would be a really good, um, a good control group or control treatment uh, for this, this particular study. And let's get, now get into these results, which, uh, which as you discussed in the, in the study, were surprising uh, to you. Um, and, uh, and there's uh, definitely uh, a lot of thought behind, you know, kind of why you're getting the, the results that you are. But, but they start out with the fact that uh, you weren't seeing, as measured by the microdialysis probe, an increase in, in blood flow, uh, which certainly defies expectations. Yeah, it, it sure did. Uh, we, we, we hypothesized that we would see an increase in, in the nutritive blood flow within the myofascial trigger point uh, after the massage treatment. Um, in, instead, we, we didn't see any change. In fact, it was a, a flat line. There was no change in blood flow. So um, this really came as a big surprise. And um, I guess my conclusion at the moment is that uh, massage therapy, at least, does not uh, affect blood flow to the trigger point in in the process of resolving the trigger point. But I guess perhaps a broader explanation is this is a a single study with 25 subjects, so so perhaps there's some something that was uh, unique to this study that prevented it from uh, working or, or, or working the way we thought. Or perhaps there was uh, the, the, the placement of the probe um, perhaps uh, affected the way the treatment uh, could be administered, or perhaps uh, there is some difference with uh, the way the probe uh, can recover ethanol, mm-hmm. which is how we measure uh, the blood flow, uh, recover the ethanol while there's uh, physical pressure on the probe through, through the massage treatment, or maybe there's some other technical aspect to this study that, that we're not uh, quite aware of. Um, that could account for this. Uh, it's also possible that uh, that the placement of the, the microdialysis probe into the trigger point uh, caused some reaction to the trigger point, uh, much mm-hmm. like an acupuncture treatment might, uh, might or not acupuncture, but um, a dry needling treatment might do. Yeah, so that, that act of measurement itself is something that um, always has to be considered as an interesting philosophical conundrum almost. It's like, how are we going to determine otherwise? You know, another technique might be, what about 
uh, has fMRI of muscle tissue been been done? Given that that you know bold signal change might correlate with uh, with changes in, in blood flow, is that is that something you think uh, could work, or has been done before, or something worth considering? Yeah, I, I think that's something that would would work. I, I haven't seen it done before, and, and I think one of the reasons is just the the expense uh, of getting uh, doing the MRI uh, procedure uh, is is a little bit cost prohibitive, at least with where we stand right now with with the research. Sure. And, and you're also measuring uh, glucose and lactate. Glucose, again, you didn't see uh, change. Was, was, that, was that expected? I mean, uh, certainly you really expected blood flow change. Glucose, did you have one opinion or the other on what would happen? Well, yeah, with glucose, we, we thought that if the nutritive blood flow increased, there would also be an influx of, of glucose. Uh, the, the idea being that the, the trigger point nodule is tightly contracted, so it's uh, uh, using a lot of, uh, a lot of glucose in, uh, from drawing that up from the surrounding interstitial fluid, and that if we increase blood flow, um, uh, therefore more glucose would come into the area uh, because that would be depleted. Mm-hmm. So, so we thought we would see an increase in glucose as well. And with, with lactate, I guess you imagine that that would, would go down, that you would get more blood flow and more aerobic metabolism, right? Yeah, we weren't quite sure on how that would go. Uh, it could have gone in either direction um, because if the cells were now processing more glucose, um, in, in theory there could be more, more um, uh, lactate produced. But also if blood flow increased, this would cause an increase in oxygen supply into the, uh, into the tissue and then perhaps the cells could be processing that glucose aerobically more uh, and mm-hmm. therefore perhaps the lactate would not be produced as much. Maybe uh, it would be go, uh, the, the glucose would be metabolized into pyruvate and go into the mitochondria and be, be processed aerobically that way. So it uh, it does go up, and I guess the question is, well, certainly, I mean, I guess that suggests that uh, the technique is doing something metabolically to the muscle. It, it appears to be stimulating more metabolic activity, which is anaerobic, since we're not apparently getting more uh, more blood flow, uh, which is suggests the technique has has an effect. Apparently, it's not the effect that that we're thinking. Um, what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think what what happens, what I think happens, is that in the resolution process of the uh, of the trigger point, the cells uh, either need more energy, more ATP energy, and now they're at a state where they're breaking down some other form of glucose, and, and it's the likely cause would be or likely source would be uh, glycogen. So there's some glycogen stores in the muscle, and that in this uh, this physical act uh, process of applying the massage to the trigger point, um, it's somehow activating the cells or changing the cells to now metabolize this uh, this glycogen, and as a byproduct in that uh, process, perhaps because there's low oxygen tension, uh, there's a lot of lactate uh, getting produced as well. Now there was a uh, another study that you discuss in here that uh, was u- utilizing petrosage and effleurage uh, and uh, I guess stripping strokes it's it's pronounced uh, diff- so different techniques and didn't observe um, changes in, in lactate. Uh, would you tell us about that study and how you think it compares and contrasts yours? Yeah, that that study in, involves some physical activity and, and they uh, they did a really nice job with um, uh, doing the physical activity and then doing the uh, massage strokes and then taking some 
um, uh, biopsies and assessing a, a number of different, uh, a, a different biochemicals. And one of the things that they actually showed was that there was a change uh, genetically. Uh, uh, the, the protein concentrations and the RNA concentrations actually increased for several, uh, uh, several um, uh, analytes. Um, one thing that they also measured was lactate, and they did not see that, uh, that change um, with those particular strokes. Um, so those were petrissage and um, uh, effleurage types of strokes, which was very different from the ischemic compression that, that we applied. Um, so perhaps these different types of uh, uh, pressures on the muscle um, result in different responses uh, physiologically by the muscles themselves. Physically, if you wanted to do a study uh, with those strokes, could you could you figure out a way to do that with the with the dialysis catheter in there? Yeah, I, I think it would be really hard. Um, the typical uh, treatments for uh, trigger points are either this ischemic compression or uh, some something called transverse friction, which is a little bit more aggressive. Um, but it causes a movement in the tissue and that risks dislodging the, the probe. The probe is into the tissue and we affix it uh, firmly with a, uh, some tegaderm tape so it's held to the tissue uh, and, and doesn't move mm -hmm. around. But if you're really aggressive, uh, this could cause some changes. So strokes like uh, effleurage and petrissage, I, I think, would cause some likely cause some disruption to the uh, um, to the probe. Well, it's 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 uh, a fascinating study. Raises definitely a number of, uh, of interesting questions about the the underlying physiology here. What um, what do you plan to do to do next to further investigate? Yeah, well, I, I definitely want to un understand what's going on with these massage treatments uh, or these interventions. Um, but I, what I'm what I want to do next actually is take a step back and confirm that there are uh, differences uh, in glucose and lactate and other uh, metabolic parameters within the trigger point um, relative to healthy to healthy muscle, and, and mm -hmm. make sure that these are are. are are different and see if that's okay. a uh, that's a problem or if that's where some of the problem lies to, uh, to begin with. Yeah, I suppose it'd be interesting to do the same study but not in trigger points uh, even as well and, and see what happens if you apply the, the technique to an otherwise apparently healthy and non-painful muscle. Right, that's, that's exactly what we hope to do next. Okay, absolutely fascinating. Well, uh, that's great. Now, was there a question that I didn't ask that I, that I should have asked or something else you wanted me to add? Well, you, one, you want to one add? thing I wanted to, to mention is that um, in addition to seeing the change in lactate uh, following the massage, that gives us some indication that there's some changes physiologically going on. We also saw an expected change in the pressure pain threshold, the, the tenderness of mm -hmm. the muscle uh, after the massage that we didn't see with, uh, with the ultrasound or with the sham treatment. Um, so, so this kind of confirms uh, that we indeed did, did do uh, a, a sufficient massage treatment to the trigger point um, because this is the, ex the expected change in the tenderness that we, we would have seen, would have expected from that particular treatment. Well, Dr. Maraska, thanks very much for, uh, for joining us for the Rehabcast today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And that'll do it for this November 2018 edition of the Rehabcast. Please share this podcast with your colleagues. Thanks for listening. And remember to look out for the new open access journal, Archives of Rehabilitation Research and Clinical Translation. 